0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. If you would please turn with me in the book of Exodus to the first chapter of Exodus, and I want to go back to the start of the story here today. There's some some things in the true history of Moses and Israel that I think are are very important for us to have perspective on our world today and all that's going on, to make sense of what's going on in our the culture wars for our, our children in this world, to also have some perspective as to what's going on in, in the Middle East and some of the terrible stories of little children and young people in Israel and and what is the hope of our world for the future? What the solution is for the, the hate and the sin and the conflict that we see in the world? Moses wrote about all of that. And I think there's some truths in the writings of Moses that will be helpful for us. Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of what Moses wrote, prophesied there would be a war with the children of the woman until Messiah would come, and Messiah would one day crush the the head of the serpent. That's sometimes called the first gospel. Right in the beginning of the Bible, the the first gospel is written by Moses there, and in the story of of Exodus, we've we've seen how Satan really is behind Pharaoh. Even Pharaoh has the the serpent crown on his on his head. He is coming in war against the little children. Look at Exodus 1, verse 16. Pharaoh says, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, "'Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, "'for they are vigorous and give birth "'before the midwife comes to them.'" So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So even as God's trying to decrease their population, they're actually multiplying and getting stronger. Verse 21, "'And because the midwives feared God, "'he gave them families.'" Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. And we're, we're familiar with this story, but I want to skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 3, with baby Moses. It says, when his mother could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. This morning we're not going to be looking at the ninth commandment, I want to actually step back from the law of Moses and I want us to consider the gospel of Moses this week and some hope for our world in the Gospel of Moses, because this story that we have many of us heard since we were little kids is actually a picture and it's a, a pattern of how God saves and, and the hope that comes even in the darkest of times for his people, past and future. And this story is also a preview to the Gospel of Matthew. Remember how the Gospel of Matthew starts with another evil man who is killing baby. Boys, baby Hebrew boys, King Herod. The Jesus story starts with the Jewish baby boys being slaughtered, but the the gospel speaks into those stories. The the gospel purposes of God are, are unstoppable. Satan and the gates of hell do not prevail against Christ and His church that He is building. And as I was meditating on this, I've been kind of deep diving into each of the Ten Commandments, but sometimes it's good for us to come up for air and, and kind of take a, a look around us at the big picture and to think about God's redemptive plan. And, and I think in particular, my heart has needed good news and, and thinking about the the horrible news of Hamas slaughtering people in the Middle East. And, and our world needs hope in the midst of the horrific, murderous, barbaric killing of little children. Our world also needs to know that God will execute justice and judgment, and that God has a way of salvation for the world, for anyone in the world, no matter what evil they are doing. And we're going to see in our study today, even terrorists are not beyond the transforming grace of Jesus. And there's good news for us As well, who need grace. We all need that grace that we sing about because Jesus said even us who hate in our heart and have sinful anger in our hearts are guilty of of murder as well. We all need this grace. And Moses being delivered from death through the water in this story actually becomes a bigger story than just him. This actually becomes the way he's going to save. He's going to use Moses to save his people from death through the water of the Red Sea Later, And there's a, there's a key link in chapter 2, verse 3, with how God saved from death through water in the past. As others are dying, Moses is kept alive in a floating basket or box, which is covered with pitch. And the New King James uses the word ark. He's in an ark. And this is a rare Hebrew word that's, that's only used one other place that I want us to look at here this morning. Turn back to Genesis 6 because there's a backstory to the language and what's happening with Moses and with God's people after him, but also before him. And the, the gospel starts back in, in Genesis. I already mentioned Genesis 3 has this promise of Jesus, Genesis 3, verse 15. But there's also a, a picture of his salvation in the ark. Little Moses and his life experiences in miniature how God delivers in the past and in the future. And I've been thinking a lot about this because at the beginning of this month, my wife and I went to the ark encounter in Kentucky, and I was thinking about the biblical theology of the ark and, and Moses. And, and I, th- I think Moses thought a lot about the ark that he had floated in when he was little, but also the bigger ark that he wrote about that we're going to look at here today. And I I hope and think we'll find some encouraging thoughts in this study that will give us some hope in the gospel. Look at Genesis 6, verse 14, where God says to Noah, Make yourself an ark. That's the same word by the same author Moses in Exodus 2, of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. So, this is much bigger than the pitch covered ark that Moses was in as a baby. That Moses, who wrote Genesis and Exodus, he's using the same word to link these stories in redemptive history. This is really recapitulating or, or a, a preview of what would happen in his life and the people of Israel's life. And I want to walk through this story of the ark in Genesis 6 through 8, and, and I hope we'll walk away with, with hope and some, some gospel takeaways. And just a little bit of context at the start of this month, my wife and I walked through the full-scale ark exhibit uh, there in the, at the museum in Kentucky. And I've been putting together notes and, and thoughts for, for this uh, study on this ever since. And as I was preparing this week, there was a word that was echoing from this old story that was also in, in the news stories around us. Genesis 6 verse 11 says, the earth, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. That word violence is the Hebrew word hamas. The Hebrew word hamas, which in the Hebrew dictionaries means violence, wrong, plunder, cruelty, damage, destruction, ruthless. These are all the things it it meant to the Hebrew readers. And in the Arabic language, it's a little bit different. It has the idea of zeal or Strength and the terrorist group Hamas that speaks Arabic use this. This is really an acronym for their group, but also building on the the Arabic word. This different but related. Uh, There's a Hebrew scholar named Dr. Will Varner who says that the the terrorists weren't intentionally connecting to a Jewish scripture word. That word Hamas, but it is an oddity, and I would say it's a it's a tragedy and it's an irony. That in the biblical language, Hamas means violence that God is going to judge in this story. And they are living out what the word meant to Hebrew speakers with unspeakable horrors. And so the first takeaway I want us to see in our passage with the language of the text is God will deal with this violence, with this Hamas and all sin. Look at verse 13 of chapter 6. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. There's that Hebrew word hamas again. Through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Them is all sinners. Not only terrorists, but all, all sinners. And beyond the flood, God is going to bring judgment in this life as well for this kind of sin. The same word is used in Psalm seven sixteen. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His his violence or his Hamas comes down on his own head. This is we've been seeing play out in the news. Things that that really have roots in the earliest chapters of what Moses wrote. Genesis twelve prophesies a curse on any who would treat rightly, uh, treat wrongly, or lightly the the seed of Abraham, and Genesis 16 promised Ishmael and his descendants would have their hand against anyone, and even against their own kin, and the line of promise was through Isaac to Jacob and not Esau. There's family feuds from the lines of Esau as well that are continuing to this day, and in the story of Genesis and in the Bible, the Jewish side hasn't been all right either. They need Messiah. It becomes clear as the story unfolds. All people need Messiah. And it's important to know that we can't necessarily trace some of the people, especially the Palestinian peoples, to some of the the people groups in in Genesis, but we can trace everyone. In fact, everyone in this room and everyone in this world is traced to the family that we're reading about here in Genesis chapter 6 because the rest of the world, except for one family, is wiped out. And so every single one of us, because the, the world is wiped out, there's one family, there's three sons and daughters who give, who give birth to children that would repopulate the earth. Every single one of us is descended from this family. We're all from Noah's family, his three sons and their wives. And, and this is why it's so terrible to hate Jews, or to hate Arabs, or any people, any ethnicity group. It's a sin, but it also forgets that we are all part of the same family tree. There is only one race. There's not different races of people that came off the ark. There's only one race. It's the human race. And there is only one people of God by saving grace. We need to remember that. And when we remember that, Palestinian Christians are more our family spiritually than unsaved Americans around us. And it also needs to be said that anti-Semitism is satanic and it is anti-Christian. And we also need to remember Arabs are not our enemy. Tens of millions of Arabs, in fact, are family in Christ and friends in Christ And Muslims and Jews apart from Christ are a part of our mission field. They're not the enemy either. But even as Israel has an enemy it's facing and must defend itself and destroy terrorism, we need to pray for enemies to repent and to surrender to Jesus. And even as they face justice, they can get mercy eternally. And I want to share with you a testimony of someone from Hamas who was experience that a little bit later in the message. But don't forget, apart from grace, we are all enemies of God by nature. We are all sinners that he must deal with. The whole world of sinners are being dealt with, but God gave grace to Noah and those who were with Noah. It's not just Muslim jihadists or murderers that God will deal with. It's moral Americans as well. We are in need of this grace, which leads to a second lesson. We're all sinners needing God's covering. And so this is where the story continues in verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And there's another, another little interesting link in the language there. These Hebrew root consonants for covering with pitch are later going to be used by Moses in, in writing about the covering of atonement. And the related noun form at the end of verse 14 is usually means the, the price of a life or the ransom as a as a substitute. Moses, this would not be lost upon him as he's writing these words. God's wrath is literally about to rain down on the sinful world. And and Noah needs that he Noah needs a a covering. He knows he, he needs this. And Noah understood the need for sacrifice as a substitute. He's going to offer sacrifices in this story that God tells him to take seven pairs of clean animals on the ark. There needed to be more of them for these atoning sacrifices that would be made. Moses is writing these terms. They would become gospel pictures in the law and God's pattern for delivering His people. Scripture later says that Noah preached righteousness He was a preacher of righteousness to the world that perished. So Noah, as he's building the ark, he's also preaching to the people. He's preaching to them. And and Noah and Moses both were delivered by God in a a special way, but they were to, to proclaim the message to seek to save others. Both Noah and Moses preached righteousness to many, and many did not listen to them. Many rejected them and were hard-hearted. Both Noah and Moses received special covenant grace. Both of them received promises. Noah received promises on, on Mount Ararat. Moses received promises on Mount Sinai. Both of these men would lead the people of God to a new land. There would be a new start through both of them after they were delivered through, through the waters of, of judgment. Both of them would be to a, a new society. And both of them were given detailed building project instructions. Moses is going to get a, a detailed instructions in the later parts of Exodus for the tabernacle. But Noah would face opposition building the ark. And, and we think of those, those men as well. We also need to think of, of Jesus who, who is, for all those in Him, the one who is, is delivered and, and who is, uh, has a, a new covenant grace for, for His people. And He also goes to prepare a, a place for them. He builds His church, but He's also preparing a place in His Father's house where there is many rooms, and there's room for many. And, and in a, a greater way, Jesus practiced righteousness. He preached righteousness perfectly. Moses wasn't perfect, Noah wasn't perfect, but, but Jesus would come and lead his people in, in new covenant grace, and, a, and he has a new land for them in glory, and he was rejected, but he offered himself as the sacrifice for atonement. Peter picks up on this language and says in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism and the floodwaters symbolize what saves us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the New Testament picks up and connects on this imagery of of how this points us to what Christ did. And there's a a third lesson that I've been meditating on, and that is there is a door of grace that will one day be shut. Genesis 6, 16. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Then chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. And verse 13, On the very same day Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. So they go in the ark, the Lord shuts them in. I want to show you a little bit of pictures from our a trip in the Ark Encounter that might help kind of fill out. Um, this is a this is in Kentucky. They have a, a full scale Ark. I don't know if you can tell, but there's a a ramp that's going up to that door, that little that white door. There's this this passageway leading up like the animals and Noah and his families would have gone up. We were there with Steve and and Heidi also there. Uh, and uh, there this is the part that. It ties in with the the story here. So there's this big door. It's and I don't know if you can tell, but as you look at it here, right in the middle, and the way they did the artwork, or maybe it's the light or the 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 tinting of the wood, what do you see right in the middle of the door? A cross. We actually have this right in in our double doors in the back there. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's the, the shape and the even tinting of a of a cross right there. And then in the evening times they the the ark is lit up with the the color of the rainbow is a symbol of what God promised His grace to them, and then in the night, especially, you can see in the door they have lit up a cross, and I think it's part of the the symbolism there to show that that this is a picture of of the the cross. Think of the the world has is corrupted the the symbolism of of the the rainbow, but but there's a this picture of of God's covenant grace through the rainbow and then through the door. There is a door of grace for any sin. And think about this, though. You've got to enter on God's terms. You don't enter in in pride. You say, far be it for me to to boast except in the cross of Christ. You've got to enter on a straight and narrow passageway. Scripture talks about it. It's not the, the broad road of destruction that the rest of the world is on. It's the way of the cross. The cross is what can save us and change us. There was only one way into the ark, and there was a a limited time there. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through the way of the cross of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me so, even as we read in Genesis 7 1, the New King James wording is this, come into the ark. We can think of Jesus when he says, come unto me. His, his arms are, are open in the Gospels. And he told the religious leaders in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in. Listen to this language in Revelation 3 of Jesus speaking. He, he describes himself as the one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door. And then Revelation 4, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven come up here. This is, a, this is an image literally from Genesis to Revelation. An image of salvation. But it's also an image that there is a day when that door is going to be shut. Listen to Luke thirteen twenty four. Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside. You will be knocking, he says. You will be pleading, sir, open the door for us. Open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. There's a time where it's going to be too late. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, you evildoers. And it says there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. That's the outer darkness, that's hell, that's, that's a, a place where God is going to one day close the door of grace and it will be too late. But I, I want to plead with you this day, sir, ma'am, young person, strive to enter that door while, it, what is, while it's open. Try, strive to, to enter through Christ. Put your faith in Him before it is too late. You can't get in by being a good person. You can't get in by by good works that you can do. It's only by trusting the good news, the work of Jesus, what he did for you on the cross. His work of salvation, dying for sin and then rising again is the only way. One pastor says, Jesus Christ is our ark of safety. He is the one that rescues us. Noah got into a boat. We get into Christ by faith and we rise above the judgment. But Jesus alone can lift his people above the waters of destruction and bring them safely to his eternal kingdom. This is the, the language of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 26. He's talking about Messiah as his kingdom comes in the future. Listen, listen to some of the echoes of this imagery, Isaiah 26. It says, He sets up salvation as walls, that the righteous may enter in, come, Come, my people, enter your chambers and, and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. That's, that's second coming wrath. Today the, the doors of grace are open to those who will come and hide themselves in Christ from the wrath that is to come. In verse 1, God told Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, Today, he tells believers, go into all the world and and preach the gospel. That's what we prayed about earlier for our missionaries and that we're called to do as well. And the message in the book of Acts is, repent for forgiveness. And this is for you and your household. This message is for you and your household, for any who will call upon the name of the Lord, who will be saved, as many as as are far off who will call on him. You need to not shut your heart to this message. Don't close yourself off to the Lord. There is a window of opportunity that will one day close. James 5 says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Judgment is one day going to swing shut. And Jesus said this in Luke seventeen twenty six: Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. This isn't just history. This is how it's going to be. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They're just going on like everything is going to continue. The ark, when Noah entered the ark, the flood came, destroyed them all. Jesus says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. There's one who's going to be taken And there's another who's going to be left. Judgment is going to come swiftly and suddenly like a thief. And so another lesson here is that this is real history. And it reminds us of future judgment. And for this, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And one of the lessons at the... Arc Encounter that highlighted that struck me was the hundreds of stories all around the world of a flood in the history of the ancestors of these people groups that settle all around the world, all these different, every continent, even little islands that are out there. The native peoples have these stories passed down orally from their ancestors for thousands of years. And, and before the missionaries came, as the missionaries came, first time they have... Uh, interaction with someone who knows the Bible and they're telling them these stories. So the Miaozo people of China tell of their ancestors, Nua built an ark for his wife, his three sons, Lohan, Shen, and Jafu, and pairs of animals to survive the flood. It rained hard for 40 days and eventually a dove was released to see if the earth was dry. One of, the, one of the native peoples of China has that story. How about the native Hawaiians on a little island? Nuu, here's their story. Nuu built a large boat with a house on top of it in which he, his wife, his three sons, and their wives were saved from a flood. Nuu then made an offering, and his gods descended on a rainbow. The Messiah of Kenya also have a, a story very similar with a dove and, and rainbows. What about the Aztecs of, of Mexico have the story? A great flood killed everyone but Nota and his wife who made a great boat of Cyprus, and they were told to stop making an alcoholic drink. I think they're thinking about Noah in chapter 9. He had some problems with alcohol. The Altaic of Central Asia. Nama was commanded to build an ark. His sons built an ark on a mountain. Birds and Animals were driven there by rising waters. Nama released a raven, a crow, a rook, and finally a dove, which returned with a birch twig in its beak. Or the Mayans of South America. After a flood, only four couples existed, but only three of them populated the earth. And the Mayans also tell about a time where their ancestors were all gathered together in one place, but then... They couldn't understand the language of each other and so they spread all over there and some of those people spread to South America. That was the Tower of Babel story. There's there's I was looking at a book there at the museum. There's between two hundred and three hundred stories like that that have been studied by people who have gone into these ancient groups of, of people passing down their stories from their ancestors. And, and how do you explain that unless there's some common story that, that came from all of these peoples of this worldwide flood? And, and how else do you explain the fact that there are fossils of sea creatures on all of the highest mountain ranges all around the world or, or billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth? How do you explain that? This is real world history. There really was a worldwide judgment, and there really will be another one by fire. This is what 2 Peter 3 talks about. It says there's going to be mockers and scoffers against the coming day, first part of 2 Peter 3. But look at verse 5, 2 Peter 3, 5. They deliberately... with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason God has not yet destroyed the world again by fire is his incredible patience. And there are more who He will draw to repentance. And He's he's patient toward you that you would even repent this day. The application for all that in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Understanding our history, understanding where this world is going Our understanding of end times should cause us to live holy, godly, hope-filled lives. Because our, our hope is beyond what we see right now in this world. He's going to say in verse 13, our ultimate hope is a new heavens and a new, what? Earth. And that should give us a new lease of life on this earth. To Know that this world is working towards God's ultimate purposes. Jesus is coming in judgment, but He has His purposes of, of patience now. Every tribe and tongue and nation, He is still drawing to repentance now. So we need to pray for missions and all that's going around the world, whether it's in Israel or Congo or in Ukraine or in the the, the island, the unreached peoples, that the the fullness of of them would come in. And I want to look at one last point here, last takeaway in Genesis 8. The hope for our world, I think, is found in a couple words at the start of Genesis chapter 8. And I'll never forget the first time I preached on Genesis chapter 8, because we were actually in the ER, or... My wife and I, the night before, from dinner time until just a few hours before Sunday morning, uh, my wife at the time was having some stroke-like symptoms, uh, actually had partial amnesia, wasn't remembering or even recognizing people from the church. We were very concerned. um, Seeing lights, her arm would even just move up involuntarily. It was was a very scary time. They were running all kinds of tests, and determined it was just... uh, a freak a neurological thing with a, a migraine. Um, there, there wasn't any lasting effects. Uh, she was determined to be okay, and I was, I was to preach it. And, and that night, this was the text. I just couldn't get past the first four words. I just kept thinking about it. But God remembered Noah, and. and Meditating on Noah and his wife were, were in the dark at the, at the moment when this chapter begins. They couldn't see what God was up to. But God is, is how the chapter begins. But God remember Noah. And when we go through those times where we don't understand, we can't see, we're wondering about the future, as I'm sure Noah did, we read these sweet words, But God Remembered Noah. Noah had refuge in God. He had remembrance of God, and the idea of remembering is he, he's he's giving merciful, attentive care. When it says in the Exodus story, the people of Israel were groaning; they were crying out to God, and it says God heard them, and God remembered. He remembered His covenant. He remembered His commitment to His His people. Not that God ever forgets anything, but now He's gonna He's gonna give special merciful attention to this situation. God remembers. Even when we forget, we can, we can forget God's attributes. We can forget what's going on. Even just when I'm, I'm struggling with sickness or things, I can just forget God's character and God's attribute. But God remembers. But God remembers Noah. God remembers us in those times. God is at work even when we can't see it. Like Noah couldn't see God's work in Genesis 8. God in this chapter, in His grace, is going to blow again and is going to be at work again. And His grace that was with them through the storm, through this whole year, is now with them through the storm to the other side in the earth's darkest hour. With judgment all around on the world and not knowing what the future would hold, we read these words, "...but God." And these two words appear later in the story of, of Genesis when Joseph, remember he was, he was sold by his brothers, first of all thrown in a dark pit and then they pull him out of a pit and he's, he's sold as a slave into Egypt and then he's falsely accused in Egypt and he spends a couple years in a dark prison and all of that. This is what Joseph was able to say later to his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Those are those words, but God. Even though that was evil what you did, but God was his, was his hope and that was his perspective. God meant it for good. And then he comforted them in, in verse 24 of Genesis 50. I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you. Isn't that good news? But God, I'm going to die. Joseph's the, 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 the guy who's been the, the one he used in this story to keep them alive, he says, I'm going to die, but God is going to take care of you. But God is the hope. Here's what Acts 7 verse 9 says. When they sold Joseph into Egypt, it says this, but God was with him. That's, that's really the setup to the story of Exodus. But God was with Egypt when, and Israel and, and Moses and all of them, when they went into Egypt, it didn't make sense to them. Why were they suffering and oppressed for all those years? But God was with them. Here's what one of the Psalms says, Psalm seventy three twenty six. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Even as our our body and our strength for all of us someday is going to fail more and more, that is the, the hope we can hold on to. But God is the strength and the hope of my portion forever. In Acts 2, the darkest day of of human history, the the day of Calvary, when when literal darkness came down for three hours on on the cross of Jesus, it says he was nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death, but God raised him up again. And, and even in our own personal stories of the darkness, when we were in the helplessness of our own sins, it says this in Romans 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that good news? And maybe the darkest picture of sinful man in Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, talks about how we were dead in our sins. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But God, praise the Lord for those two words, but God. And that's the reason why if you've ever been in my office, you see as you're looking out that window there, the words above the window, but God because it's a reminder to me every time I look out at the world I need to remember those words but God and I want to close with the story of that I think really puts but God on display it's, it's from the book Son of Hamas by Mossab Hassan Yusuf uh, he's the son of Hamas's co-founder. Uh, he grew up in Palestine. He, he personally knew the highest levels of Hamas and Yasser Arafat in all of those years. He was raised to hate and annihilate the Jews, but God. And, and I want to end on a note of hope in his story. He writes in that book, It is my greatest hope. Now, this is a, a the, the title there if you want to if you want to read this book, Um, it is my greatest hope in telling my own story. I will show my own people, Palestinian followers of Islam who have been used by corrupt regimes for hundreds of years, that the truth can set them free. I tell my story as well to let the Israeli people know that there is hope. If I, the son of a terrorist organization dedicated to the extinction of Israel, if I can reach a point where I not only learn to love the Jewish people, but risked My life for them, there is hope. He says, my story holds a message for Christians too. We must learn from the sorrows of my people who carry a heavy burden trying to work their way into God's favor. We have to get beyond the religious rules. We must love people on all sides of the world. He says, I was a prisoner of the Israelis when my eyes were open to the fact that the Palestinian people were Oppressed by their own leaders as, as much as they were by Israel. Manipulated by lies and driven by racism, hatred, and revenge. I was on my way to becoming one of those people until 1999. I encountered the only true God. He is the Father whose love is beyond expression. Yet shown in the sacrifice of His only Son on a cross to atone For sin, he is the God who three days later demonstrated his power and righteousness by raising Jesus from the dead. He is the God who not only commands me to love and forgive my enemies as he has loved and forgiven me, but he empowers me to do so. He says the message of Jesus, love your enemies, is what finally set me free. It no longer mattered who my friends were or who my enemies were. I was supposed to love them all. And I could have a loving relationship with a God who would help me love others. Sorry for him as he was walking through the Damascus Gate, which he would say in his book there was kind of interesting because uh, it was on the way to Damascus that Saul of Tarsus had an encounter with the Lord. But it was, a, it was a young man, a British man, who was going to a Bible study and he saw this young man and he invited him to come and to study. The Bible with him and while they were there the Sermon on the Mount or shortly thereafter he's reading about Jesus talking about loving and praying for your persecutors and doing good for those who mistreat you that you can be sons of your father in heaven. He says he was like thunderstruck by these by these words and and it, it took a while before he came to true saving faith but he instead of planning terror attacks he actually worked to prevent them and and worked undercover with Israel's security agency to try to stop terrorism whenever it could happen, uh, preventing many suicide attacks and saving the lives of hundreds of citizens and even helping prevent assassinations of different officials. Um, he was baptized in the year 2000, even though they warned him that this would be very dangerous for him to do. In 2007, he left, left the West Bank and he came to uh, Southern California, where he joined a, a church, and he is, uh, in many ways, shared his his testimony um, of becoming a Christian. And he described this in one interview how Christianity helps him love his enemies, to deal with bad memories, to win over enemies through love, and not to dictate over them. He says this quote: "This is how Christ defeated the world when he loved in the most difficult and painful position on the cross." Um, Mossab's brother in 2019 has also turned against Hamas, but not yet turned to Christ I I think we need to pray and I want to encourage you to pray for as you see his face there pray for many more like Mossab that the Lord would open their eyes that the Lord would use people to to share the gospel and and even use us to think about inviting someone to come study the word of God with us. But we would pray that this, like this son of Hamas, that there would be many, even in the, the world and many who are caught up in systems like that, that would become true sons of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray for that. Our gracious God, we thank you that you, your grace is greater than all sin. And Lord, but for your grace, Lord, we would still be enemies or we would be hard-hearted and And, Lord, we can be uh, inoculated to your grace, Lord. We can hear these things so many times and not be impacted by them. But, Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts in light of your grace, that you would move us to speak of your grace to others, to pray. And, Lord, I want to pray right now that you would save many in the world through, through the work of Christ and through faithful witnesses. We pray this for his name, for his glory. Amen.